In Daniel chapter 5, verse 22, it says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Today we figure out how much Babylon weighs. This is day 10. Welcome to the Journey Through Daniel podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's Word. Together we'll discuss the content and meaning of each passage and how the book of Daniel can help us understand more about who God is and the story he's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to the Journey Through Daniel podcast. This is day 10. I'm here once again with Brendan Lang. Hey, hey. And we have Ken Norton joining us. Let's go. Student Ministries Pastor here at the North Shore. Mm. Very excited to have you on. I'm excited to be here. We're wrapping up week two. You with you. Are we really? Yeah, this is, is it. it. This is day 10. I sent you the email that said what I, they were doing. I never read those. I know. I just uh, show up and you lead the way. Oh my goodness. That's mm. a terrible That's idea. That's what we always do. <laughs> we're just followers here. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. I uh, have a question for you, because today we're going to be dealing with some statistics, it seems. What's your favorite stat that you know? Or like, even just like piece of information, a little nugget of truth. What's your favorite, Ken? Okay, so actually, I did some research. Here's my favorite stat. There are more trees in this earth than there are stars in our galaxy. No, there's not. Mm-hmm. There are 3 trillion trees here on earth. There are 400 billion stars in the galaxy. That's pretty Mind incredible. Blown, right? I had to think about the difference between billion and trillion there for a second. I was like, 400 billion sounds a lot more than 3 trillion. No, it's yeah. not. 3 all. trillion trees. That's crazy. Have you ever thought about that? 3 trillion. That's so many trees. I mean, I probably have like 50 trees in my backyard, but they're just like the little weedy type of trees that eventually cut down. So my favorite stat, I didn't think that's what you meant by this question. I thought it was like... Of course. I like... <laughs> were you thinking statistical like I was just like thinking class? what types of stats and like how are stats used? Oh, I, I love... I love... Uh, yeah, yeah, I love it. He's I love RBIs. I love RBIs. No, 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 no. RBI talk. The analysis of stats has evolved dramatically over the last decade. Okay, don't give us the history of that. We'll get more history. RBIs matter, but other stats matter more. I guess that's the point. Is like, especially I love (laughs) basketball, and the evolution of the game is directly tied to how people have been analyzing the number. Like we've had the numbers on the back of basketball cards for years. Yeah. But what do the numbers actually say? And so that's fun for me. Is like digging into that kind of stuff. And in another (laughs) world, if I wasn't like like doing church stuff. I've always thought I either want to do sports podcast <laughs> with Ken. Yeah. <laughs> we just keep bringing it back. Or be like a stats guy. And be like, yeah. have your stats helped you in your fantasy football team? Are you looking at the I made a Are bad mistake this weekend, but I was... Cl- Tough luck. Yeah, it was a bad matchup too. It's just a difference of brains. Beeline goes straight analytical. I love Well, it. I love how he's like, you so know good. what? I'm not even going to answer your question. I'm going to redefine mm. the question I was interpreting your question. You. Uh-huh. Pushing the boundaries. And then he's like, well, we need to look at the sport entirely and the history of the context of how it informs yeah i'm with you brendan there you go i was like googling interesting stats and if you google interesting stats the first one that google gives you is on average 100 people choke to death on ballpoint pens every year how people keep the pens away from your mouth like let's save some lives 100 we can cut that number we We should start a social media campaign what is the don't eat the pen keep the pen to yourself the michael scott fun run was like four people die every rabies rabies, yeah yeah. 100 people die every year from chewing on ballpoint pens yeah you gotta keep that away guys well today we're talking about some stats brendan you should get excited i think we're talking about stats i'm not really sure actually can you interpret it for us it's gonna be in the (laughs) i think we start with the commentary let's start there how about that Day 10, the writing is on the wall. In today's reading, the story of Belshazzar and the writing on the wall continues. As we've seen, the local Babylonian experts have proven ineffective yet again at interpreting an omen of truly divine origin. In fact, in each successive story, they've shown themselves to be increasingly incompetent. 
In Daniel 2, they couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. In Daniel 4, they couldn't interpret a dream even after hearing it. Now in Daniel 5, they are not only unable to interpret a message, they can't even read the message. So at the behest of the queen mother, Belshazzar invites Daniel to interpret the omen. We learn from Daniel that the inscription said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This succinct message lists various Babylonian monetary weights. Like the metals of the statue in Daniel 2, the value of these weights declines as the list goes on. This general decline in value might share a clue about the significance of the message. Something considered great would diminish into something of little worth. However, more help would be needed to understand the writing's full meaning. So Daniel proceeds to interpret the message. He says, Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel discerned this interpretation by means of creative wordplay. The Aramaic terms Mene, Tekel, and Paris contain the same root letters as the words above translated as numbered, weighed, divided, and Persia. The meaning of the omen was that Belshazzar and his Babylonian empire would be brought down. The proud ruler had refused to humble himself, so God was going to do it for him. God's humbling of Belshazzar teaches about God's concern for humility. In God's upside-down value system, leaders are to live as though they are not fundamentally better than the people they lead. In fact, God wants leaders to embrace the posture of servants. Unfortunately, governments, corporations, and even churches frequently elevate their leaders to a godlike status. We must resist this impulse or else God will intervene. The writing is on the wall. For day 10, we're reading Daniel chapter 5, verses 13 through 31. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. 
That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Ken, you want to take us through our reflection questions for day 10? Question 1. The story of Belshazzar in Daniel 5 parallels the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Both kings are humbled after exhibiting great pride. However, their final outcomes are different. What did Nebuchadnezzar do that Belshazzar didn't? And what can that teach us today? Question two. In Daniel 5, 22, Daniel indicts Belshazzar not only for his pride, but also for his unwillingness to respond to what he knew. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Why would Belshazzar's knowledge make him more culpable? What does this mean for us in our knowledge of God? I love how Daniel's like offered all these treasures and like all the status and stuff. And he's like, yeah, no, thanks. I've been there. I'm guessing at this point he's had such a like illustrious career. I mean, yesterday we said that he's like what in his 60s, 70s, something like that. Something like that. So he's like, I'm retired. I'm good. I'm set. And just wait till tomorrow or day 12, I guess. Wait Wait till till Tuesday. Okay. Wait till Tuesday. You know what this reminds me of? The writing on the wall. You ever played Super Smash Brothers? Have I ever? Yeah. The moments in time where the little white glove is always hovering. Oh, yeah. The floating hand. The floating hand. Yeah. That's exactly what I think. That's where they came up with the floating hand. When I think Maybe it is. I just can't get the image out of my head every single time when I read this. <laughs> it's, it's a floating like hand. A floating yeah, hand. Makes sense. Yeah. And as Mario, I should defeat it. Interesting. I've know. never played Smash Bros. What? Are you serious? Well, I, we should serious? play some Smash Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so dream interpreter. Oh, Brendan. Oh, stat lover. What is going on here? Interpret this dream for me. It's not even a dream. It's an omen. Yeah, sure. It's a type of omen. Okay. Well, I'm confused about the omen. Well, we talked about the significance of the hand, how it's playing off of themes of power that's related to hands. That was yesterday. Yep. Yeah. Talked about that yesterday. And today we're talking about what that hand, a dismembered hand, which is doubly scary. And it writes this omen on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, parsing. Just four words, which are interesting because these are the names of weights in the ancient world. You can go to some museums and see weights that very clearly these refer to. How and many menes do I weigh? Brandon? How many menes? Yeah. It's equivalent to, honestly, it's like mina. You've heard minas, right? In yeah. The oh, yeah, yeah. So it's the same. It's just language a little bit different. Oh, okay. Tekel, it's the difference between tekel and shekel. It's the overlap. So you've heard of a shekel. Yeah, so they probably like weighed a certain metal and they called it a shekel. Yep. That's what the word literally means. A shekel or a tekel is just the noun form of the verb shekel, which means to weigh. So all that to say, it's four words that refer to weights, but the verbal forms also refer to things like weights. And that's what Daniel essentially does. He does a sort of creative wordplay to interpret this omen. And so he says, mene. Well, he says, God has numbered. The word translated as numbered comes from the same root, manah, the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed. You've been tikkaled, you've been shikkaled, if you're in Hebrew, on the scales and found wanting. Paris, and this one's actually doubly interesting, says your kingdom is divided. So the word translated there is divided, uses the same root letters as Paris, but also says, and given to the Medes and Persians. And we can tell, at least in English, that the Persians use those same roots, PRS. And so it's kind of doubly significant. And it sets up what we're going to discover next in the next chapter, which is a story about now a Persian king is in control. And it alludes back to what we talked about in that dream in chapter two, and we're going to talk about in Daniel seven, which is there's going to be a sequence of empires that continue to do the same thing over and over and use their power to hurt others. And so that's kind of the omen. It basically predicts that you have exhibited great pride. You've been arrogant in the way you've treated the instruments of God, and so you're going to be humble. 
how do you honestly, normal human being that doesn't have this analytical brain like you, how do I find this information out? I read this and I'm like, I don't know what this is. Right? Well, you so, know, you other than this, other right? than Daniel's interpretation, I, mean, I don't we know. get, you know, like we yeah. get in this scripture that Daniel interprets it, but like the wordplay, like that's stuff like, how that... How do you know that? Yeah, like, I would I never know. know that. You tried to teach me Hebrew before the we pandemic did. and <laughs> we, kind of derailed. We're going to have to pick that up sometime. We'll have to pick it up. But if you don't know Hebrew... But kind of alludes to it this? here in some way. The translation, they try to allude to it here, and that's why they give you the words many tech in person. They could have translated those, kind of, I guess. I don't know what you would call those. Wait, tackle. But this is the problem with the translation. I mean, if we just want to talk about translation theory and things like that, whenever you make a translation, you are necessarily making an interpretive choice. You're deciding, this is what I want to convey. This is what I think matters most. And so, for instance, if you're interested, this is NIV. It's called a dynamic translation, which tries to be somewhat word for word, try to be close to the original text, but they take a little bit more freedom to try to help make sense of things. But, you know, with this, I would suggest maybe here, it'd be valuable to have something that I would call an artistic translation. Now, those don't exist. I've always thought we should have one be a major, major, major project. Sorry, I was zoning out. You called? Well, no, it's like there are so many great things hiding in the Hebrew text or in the Greek text, things that are below the surface, especially creative, artistic things. Scripture is beautiful. It's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And it saddens me that people don't know. Like when people say the Bible's too boring. No, it's actually incredible. It's just the interpretations you have, the translations you have have made a choice to say what matters most is trying to get across the literal, if we want to call it that, meaning. But form, it contributes something to meaning. I really do believe that. So the artistry, why does scripture use the art forms it does? What does it convey through those things? Those matter just as much for the interpretation. And so I believe there'd be value in helping people see this. Unfortunately, those translations don't really exist because it'd be really hard to pull off. Well, I think just like some history behind it too, you know, when the Bible started to be translated for the common tongue, the people who were doing that were like the professors at schools, right? And I'm taking this class actually right now, Mm -hmm. just about origin of scripture mm-hmm. and how we view scripture and the fundamentalist view of how to read scripture, which is not a uh, political fundamentalist. In fact, if you want to make it political, both left and right wing, progressive and conservative views sure. of the Bible, they are both fundamental. And it's this idea that was actually brought about in Germany by some of these professors that said, and it's actually Harnack, you know Harnack, right? Yeah. He was the pioneer of the kernel and husk form hmm. of how to read scripture, right? Yeah. How you read scripture through his lens, and this is how we read it today. Most Christians in America read this today. Every scripture you're looking for, that kernel of truth, the Mm -hmm. big meaning, grab that. That's what you need. And get rid of the husk. I knew you'd love this metaphor because it's a farming <laughs> metaphor. We have lots of corn around here We're in the Midwest, but it's this idea of you like you grab the kernel of truth and there's all this other stuff you can discard. Like you said, scripture is a masterpiece. Yeah. Like it is so beautifully written. And you know, as a creative, I am with you, the form and how you communicate something communicates the value of what you're communicating to. Listen, when you want to do the uh, artistic translation, you just let me know. I, you have my number. It'd be hard to, I mean, I've always thought, especially the book of Psalms, like, man, but the thing is even there, you have to choose what stylistic thing do I want to convey? Cause you can't bring it all across. But we try, for instance, at the beginning of the book, in the introduction, we talk about this chiasm. That's artistic. There's something going on there. And when you see the way this has been organized, it helps you understand what it's all about. And so Daniel 5, when you see that this is at the center of this chiasm in the Aramaic section, where Daniel 5 sits parallel to Daniel 4, you read those stories in light of each other. How does the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and his downfall, his humbling, compare to the humbling of Belshazzar? What's similar? What's different? And what is Daniel trying to teach us through that? So much to literary design. Yeah. Of the books. When, and that's what I love about doing these types of discussions with you because I get some of that 
husk back, right? Like, <laughs> you do. Yeah. And for all of us, like if you are reading a teaching on Daniel and you're not getting into some of this stuff that's like kind of difficult, there's a lot of background, a lot of history, a lot of wordplay. You know, yeah. this stuff is important husk stuff and it's not being taught, then you're missing out on the yeah. truth that is the entirety of scripture. Yeah. There's so much you can always get from scripture. You'll never stop learning. And I never stop learning. And that's why I love it because I can go And you've back read it a lot. I've read it a lot, like, but a there's, lot. there's a lot of people who've had eyes for things that I haven't looked for. I mean, there's been a lot of great study. And honestly, again, every time you read it, you're bringing new things that you've learned to the table. And so I love getting into it every day. And so just to quickly answer your question, Kenny, because I thought that was a good question. How do you do this? Find someone to walk alongside you with this. Maybe that's someone who knows scripture. Honestly, there's no shame in like having a really great study Bible. I think everybody should have a really good study Bible. There's different types of commentaries. And yeah, it's like that stuff isn't the word of God, but it's experts who spent a lot of years studying it who've tried to help make sense of the word of God for us. And so I'd recommend something like that. That's why I love doing these because it helps you go deeper in a way that unlocks like this mystery and puzzle of how scripture really works together. And then it's just like a snowball. Once you get a taste of it, it just runs downhill. And Brennan, you've and it done begins such a great job well, doing that for us as a church and for me personally. And well, it's been I appreciate awesome. that. Well, and like what you're saying is like all of it's there and sometimes we can't see all of it and interpret mm-hmm. it. Maybe it's a language thing. This kind of brings me to one of my questions. These were common words for the time, right? Belshazzar should have been able to read these words. So that's kind of the funny thing. It's like people suggested that this was like written in a different language or whatever. Yes, these are words that he should understand, but you know, for whatever reason, he may not be familiar with. And again, like what we have here is a story that's been shaped, written with a point. And it's like, who knows? knows exactly what language, what did this look like on the wall, whatever. It's like the story isn't about that really fundamentally. It's about what is God trying to communicate to Belshazzar? And so it's conveyed through scripture in a way that would make sense to the original readers of the book of Daniel. You know, if it was in some version of Neo-Babylonian that Belshazzar would have been more familiar with, well, people in Judea wouldn't have been able to understand that, right? So it'd actually be the reverse. So all that to say, we don't know exactly why he couldn't read it, but he couldn't read it. Well, I'll tell you why. Okay. That was a total like setup. No. <laughs> All right, well, then tell me. I'll tell you why, because he didn't have eyes to see, which is the theme of this book. Yeah. That's what we're going through. And turns out Daniel's the one who has eyes to see. And I think throughout this process, I'm going to say this again, almost word for word, we've promised ourselves that we will look at all the characters in the story, place ourselves in all the characters' shoes, and try to figure out how we are like Daniel in this story. How are we like Belshazzar in this story? How are we like the queen mother in this story? The person who is seeking truth knows where to find it and recommends it. How are we like those people in our world? I think we can look at each character and see what have they done, you know, how they presented themselves, how has the story presented them, and what are we supposed to take from that? I will say we shouldn't always read scripture and try to model ourselves after, and I know that's not what you're asking, but I do want to say that, like, to give you an example, Abraham, that's a character we want to analyze, what is he like, his story evolves throughout the book of Genesis. He's a hero of the faith in a lot of ways, but he's also not someone who's always supposed to be imitated because he's a guy who makes a lot of boneheaded mistakes, and there are a lot of people like that in scripture. And so when we do character analysis, We need to be reading it through the lens of the rest of scripture, especially Torah. And how do these guys, gals reflect the character of God, but also how do they fail to reflect the values of God? And so that's what we need to do when we look at these. And then again, see, as you've asked, 
how do we compare to them and how do we stand up to Torah? And Daniel, he's presented as someone who, again, has a relationship with God, who understands what's going on. He has a perspective of the world that the Babylonian scholars don't have. They're called in for a brief moment and proved to be incompetent. Daniel is connected to God. You have the queen mother who is invited in kind of late. <laughs> Stephen brought attention to this. It's yeah. kind of interesting that the one woman who's in the story, one woman we've met in the whole book of Daniel has the answers and Belshazzar doesn't. So she enters in and she speaks boldly. She speaks the truth to Belshazzar. What I think is most important when we look at Belshazzar, because we talked about the comparison of the two chapters, Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. Yeah. And we've been hard on Nebuchadnezzar. But we've also noticed that at the end of his stories, he usually comes to this point of remorse or even a sort of repentance. He acknowledges God. He acknowledges God. He worships and, God. Yeah. yeah. He recognizes, I think I'm the king of kings. You are the Lord of kings, right? The one difference between those two guys is Nebuchadnezzar in all those stories, even though he keeps falling backwards and getting in the same habits, he changes, especially in Daniel 4. When he's that animal, when he's that beast, when he's been humbled, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he's restored. He repents, you might say. What do we see with Belshazzar? No sort of repentance, no sort of looking to God. He's a person who doesn't change his ways and he suffers judgment because of it. I feel like I'm becoming more and more like Nebuchadnezzar. In this <laughs> you like Nebuchadnezzar sounds better than Belshazzar, huh? Well, yeah, in this case, for sure. But also, yeah. I'm definitely not Daniel because there's no way that I'm perfect. You know, Daniel doesn't seem to have many flaws in this book. He doesn't have any flaws in this book that I know of. And I think that's important. And we'll talk about that more as we get into Daniel 6 and 7. So definitely not any of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a model for us. He's one of the guys that you can look at and be like, okay, he has a prayer life that's worth imitating. He's a guy who has courage that's worth imitating. He's a person who has a relationship with God that's worth imitating. And so those are things we can definitely take away from that character. Mm. You know, the thing about Daniel is that, you know, we're sort of repeating a similar narrative in all these stories and every day, you know, there's an affirming thing. But I think that when it comes to applying it to our lives, it's going to look different for every one of us. Like you said, not every character is worth imitating. Daniel definitely has some imitations that you can, you know, ascribe to. But as we're reading this, how do we apply it to our lives when like really the characters I identify with most are the ones that are most flawed in this story, the people who are the least perfect. I do think that's how we're supposed to interpret this story specifically. I would say it's like, what is this story about? It's about a king, a proud king who failed to humble himself and suffered judgment. And the contrast again is with Nebuchadnezzar, proud king who was humbled, but repented, but was restored. And so the message is when you read the contrast, man, we have to learn to be like Nebuchadnezzar. That's something we haven't said The so ultimate far. twist. <laughs> Halfway through the study and we got the ultimate twist here. Yeah, but it's like when we're confronted with our wrongs, with the ways we've abused our power with the ways that we've exhibited arrogant pride with our flagrant use of the things of God, whatever that looks like in our lives, then we need to change our ways. We need to repent. We need to look to God and admit you have power. You're in control. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody without you. I'm a beast without you. God, you alone can give me power and dignity and worth. And so I'm going to lift my eyes to you because you are God of gods, God of kings, God of humans. And so I think that's what the story is trying to teach us. Again, if we want to talk about the character analysis, I would say we might compare to different characters, but we also probably compare to all of them in different ways because we have so many different types of relationships we're navigating, so many different ways in which we fit in. And so if you want to compare like how we relate to any of them, we need to look at all the ways in which we relate with the world and we have something to learn maybe from every character. I think the hardest thing is probably finding that out in yourself. 
you say all that and it sounds nice. Like, oh, do you have eyes to see? How do you look inward? And I don't know, because it's like, when I try to do that by myself, I've normally failed. And yeah. I've had to ask for other people, I think, yeah. to speak into that. Because I think that's the applicable point is you can go through life and most of us probably will be like, we have the eyes to see. You know, like, oh, we, sure. I'm we woke. got it. We're fully woke over we're, here. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, we're on a whole new level. And so I don't know. I think there's just something to like, how do we invite others in to help us see things we've never seen before? Because if we yeah. try to do it by ourselves, we'll fail in that. And so yeah. there's a part of like, okay, how do we ask the spirit to do that within ourselves? And then how do we invite others to help us see things? Because ultimately, like, I'll just continue walking down my path. You know, like, yeah. no one wants to change. I don't want to shake the foundations of my life. Well, everybody's and, the protagonist. You know? Yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, and it's not even that. So nobody's out there going like, man, I want to be the worst. Everybody is under the assumption they're doing the best that they can. We're all good. You know? That whole idea, I think, is applicable and also interesting to me to like, how do I find others? How do I have people in my life discipling me so that I can also disciple others and to share the truth of things and to find people to come alongside and to teach, I think is important. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned there is it's how you do it, but also reorients your heart. If you're going to listen, if you're going to invite others to give you feedback in your life, I mean, I guess you can do that and then you can just ignore it. But if you have the humility to say, there might be something I'm missing. And so I'm going to ask you, would you look at me, look at my life? Are there ways that I'm getting this right? Are there ways I'm doing this wrong? Like, how should I change? If you have that humility and you have the humility to hear those things and the humility to change when you're presented with those truths, well, you're right where, honestly, God wants you to be. I mean, that's what we've been talking about throughout this book is the fact that God honors those who are humble. He honors those who express humility. He doesn't want people with pride. He doesn't want people who are arrogant. He wants people who he can work with. Because when you're in that position of humility, that's when you can learn. And it's not easy. That's the thing that we need to like name in this. If we're called to be more like Jesus, which is really what this is pointing back to, Daniel has a lot of allusions to Jesus. And if we're going to be more like Jesus, let's keep in mind that that dude was tortured in the most painful and shameful way that Rome, the greatest empire of history maybe, has ever come up with. You know, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. Hmm. It's really painful, in fact, to sit in that tension of humility and know that like, man, I'm constantly going to be reshaping my life, Mm -hmm. constantly inviting people into my life to tell me what I need to do to get better. That's a really difficult thing to do. So just to name that, what you're called to do is not easy. That's why I love being with students because they're at the age where they're actually probably more open to that. And as adults, I mean, speaking for myself, you become hardened to it. It's been so great to serve and be with students because it reminds you like, oh man, we're all learners here and they're learning. And when they see that and you get to watch them do it, it changes something in your heart of like, oh, okay, I need to continue to learn. I need to keep doing that. And so that's my shameless plug to serve for student ministries and, (laughs) and you'll just grow in your faith in ways unlike any other. There's one last thing I want to point out from this passage, and I kind of did it already at the beginning of our commentary. I think it's super funny that Belshazzar offers these rewards and gifts and the things that would entice all Mm. the Babylonian enchanters and like he believes are these things that, listen, if you can interpret this, look at what I'm going to give you. Mm -hmm. Look at the opportunity in front of you. And Daniel, when presented with the same thing, he says, then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. He knows why he's doing this. Mm-hmm. He knows that he's a captive that really still at the age of 70, whatever, even with the fact that he's probably still powerless, still living in a foreign land, he says, you don't know what value I have in this world, but I know it's not these gifts and I know it's not mm-hmm. from you. And it affirms this idea we've been talking about this whole time that the one who can give and take away power is the almighty God. It is not these rulers. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like just in this, it's a foreshadowing that like, listen, the value you think you can offer me, this is not eternal. And in fact, this guy dies later that day. You yeah. know, his reign is done. So like the power that he has to promote or 
kill what's people. interesting is dino's still promoted oh totally that's, he that's, still gets all the stuff that's got to be a wild scene for him to i be know like, i don't want it <laughs> and then gosh i got it and then like oh, well he's dead see you later you know like, yeah right i just think yeah. it's super fascinating that you know he's given every worldly thing mm-hmm. he can be offered and he says you know you can keep your gifts for yourself and it continues a theme we've seen and will continue to see throughout the book. You see it in chapter two, you'll see it all the way to chapter 12, which is the rewards that really matter, the rewards that have worth, they're going to come from God. And so it's, you stay faithful to him and he's going to elevate you. And that's, I think, one reason, honestly, why we see him still be elevated, even though he rejects it. Like, yeah. I'm not interested in what you have to offer. God still gives it to him anyway, because he chose to be faithful at this point, to be a faithful steward of God's truth to an evil dictator. And he's going to continue to to do that. And so the encouragement for us is we don't respond to powers because of what they can give us. I yeah. think we can be really intimidated and scared and forced to do things because people have control and can use money and resource and all sorts of things to coerce us to make decisions we would never otherwise want to make. But the lesson of the book is that the rewards that really matter, they ultimately come from God above because he's the one who's in power. He's the one who owns all these things. And so we got to give our lives to him. It's integrity. That's like the definition of integrity. Despite everything else, I will remain firm. And like, he's in exile. He's gone through all these kings who keep offering these things. Yeah. But his character of who he is and the integrity of holding on to that, despite what's happening, is this thing that you see. And so like, for me, I'm like, okay, if I'm in a horrible season of life where I'm going through something difficult, right? If I remain firm to my integrity of what I think God is teaching me, what God is telling me, then it doesn't matter who's in charge. Hmm. It doesn't matter whatever leader, in whatever way, I can remain firm in that. Before we wrap up, we wanted to bring your attention to something else that is a little different for the journey through Daniel. Every journey study we've done, we have put a feature section at the end of every week, sort of to give you a break and reprieve, but also just to separate each week visually. This time, we decided that the best way to use this space was to tell stories of people in our community, people who attend Willow Creek Community Church, and how they have confronted and experienced systemic power abuse or confronted systems of power generally. We think this is really important to hear and share with people's stories. For the people who did share, this is an incredibly vulnerable experience. And in addition to having them in print in the book, we recorded these interviews and we wanted to give you a sixth day of podcasts. By no means do you have to listen to this. Feel free to skip it, delete it. But I would challenge you, the understanding of your fellow human, your fellow churchgoer is only going to make us better as people as we understand and start to empathize with those around us. Thanks for joining us today for the Journey Through Daniel podcast. If this is your first time, so glad that you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org. And follow us for updates at Willow Creek NS on Instagram. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check us out at willowcreek.org. We'll see you next time.